Good morning, family. Welcome to my living room. <laughs> if I haven't met you, my name's Megan. And one of the perks of getting to do uh, church this way, we're kind of in this rhythm, right? Where we're doing two weeks virtual, and then uh, the third week we're gathering, we're calling it pop-up church, and we're meeting in person. But this week is one of the virtual weeks, and I get to preach from my living room, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, so I wanna shout out though to anybody that's meeting and watching this morning uh, at, from one of our house parties. I think we've got the Williamsons, uh, we got the Smiths, the Hambies, the Adams, who am I missing? Mel Mills, I think is hosting today. So shout out to the house parties. Um, if you don't know, we are having these uh, gatherings in homes where we can watch the service and hear the sermon and worship together and just engage in dialogue. And so uh, shout out to, to those groups. But uh, it's funny when people come to our house, I, I bought this house years ago and it was a total renovation project, like total overhaul. And people come over sometimes and they'll say, oh, Meg, I love what, you, what you've done with the de decorating and the decor, I love the vibe. And I always kind of chuckle because if you know, uh, this is 100% not my responsibility. My husband is actually the interior decorator. He's the one who has the eye for uh, decor and, and setting an ambiance and kind of curating a space. And if you're into interior design, you might know uh, what, what Jake has taught me which is that, you know, there's a lot that goes in to kind of curating a space and making it what you want. But there's one thing in particular uh, that, that can really make or break the setting. Uh, one thing that it's actually pretty easy to, to change this element, uh, but it can have a big effect. So any guesses on this one thing? So it's lighting. Lighting. Uh, lighting can have uh, a huge effect. It's, it's amazing actually what, what lighting can do to a room um, or to, to even an outdoor setting. So uh, last year, some of our neighbors, a uh, few neighbors, uh, started hanging these lights like in their backyard. Um, you've probably seen them, kind of these soft lighting to kind of set a, an ambiance. And I had a friend last year who um, got my cash app. Shout out to, to Misha, who I used to play basketball with. And she sent, uh, sent me some money, like several hundred dollars, and said, hey, use this for your community, use this for your block. And so my husband and I were praying, you know, how should we, how should we steward this money? And what we ended up deciding, we got with some of our neighbors and we decided we wanted to, to hang lights uh, along the porches uh, on our street here. So if you come down Gladstone at night now, you'll see almost all the porches are lit up uh, with these lights and it's, it's, it's nice. It's like this kind of uh, soft, warm vibe. And for a while, actually our street light was out. So it kind of lit up the, the block, made it feel safer. Uh, and so it was, it was really cool. It was just like this simple thing. Um, and everybody kind of felt like it was this sort of bonding experience. Like it had this kind of communal aspect. Uh, so it's amazing and the simple change that just lighting can have. And lighting, and this idea of light, this kind of motif, we see it all through the scriptures. Perhaps one of the most famous uh, mentions of light is from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, when Jesus talks about being like a city on a hill, how the people of God are called to, to give out light in the earth. And he says in that teaching, he says, you are to be, this, you are to be like this. And he says, you don't light a candle or light a lamp and put it under a basket or a bowl or something. Instead, you put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. 
And Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your father who is in heaven. In fact, there's, there's another reference though uh, to light. And we're gonna be looking at that today. We find it in our text for today from Philippians chapter two uh, in verse 15. And I'll just uh, read the phrase that, that Paul uses here in his letter to the Philippians. He says that uh, they are to shine like stars in the sky. That's the NIV translation. The ESV says uh, they are to be as lights in the world. This idea of, of light, of, of shining. And so my sermon today is called A Community of Lights. And I want to look at together three things that a community of lights does. These kind of three actions uh, that we draw out from the text of these three imperatives Paul gives of our, of our calling together to be a community of lights. And so let me pray as we begin. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, I pray today that as we open the scriptures together, that you would also open our hearts, that you would lay bare uh, the things that we need to see in and of ourselves. God, that you would guide us and knit us together, even as we might be spread all over the city today, um, or even all over the country for those watching. God, that you would move in our hearts, that you would give me the words uh, to speak with precision, um, that we would be encouraged and uh, given direction, God, for how to walk out this life. Um, pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, we're gonna be in Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 18 today. And if you're just kind of tuning in, we've been in a series uh, with a very provocative title. It's called Born to Die, Born to Die. We've been going through the book of Philippians. It's a letter from Paul to the church at Philippi. And uh, the, the subtitle is Heaven's Mentality. So this is what we've been seeking after. And today where Paul picks up in this letter, uh, he begins by saying, therefore, my dear friends, or therefore, my beloved, in some translations. And this therefore, uh, it's, it's picking up from where he started back in chapter one, actually in verse 27, when he gets into this section on where he's exhorting the people where he's calling them to uh, live a life worthy of the gospel, he says. And that whole section there and into chapter two, there's these strong themes of, of unity, a, a call to, to be together as a community. And also, as we saw last week, uh, when Fonz preached about humility and this humility being ultimately uh, the, the, the par excellence, so to speak, the exemplar being Christ. And so he's picking up here today in chapter 12 uh, to continue exhorting the people uh, to how they should be living. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Um, so when I'm, I mentioned these three actions of the community of lights, and the first one I want to talk about from this section is a community of lights works out together. Uh, and this is from what Paul's saying of working out their salvation. I want to spend a good chunk of time actually on this section. Um, now, if you hear the word work out, now some of y'all 
might get excited about this. Uh, some of you guys like to be in the gym every day. I'm not gonna name names, but I am looking at you. I know who you are. You like to work out. This is a big part of your life. Uh, now, so some of us though, uh, we got rid of our gym membership around COVID and uh, we haven't returned. <laughs> and that would be me. That would be me. But you know, shout out to the people that work out at home because that I love doing that. And it's good to work out, right? It's good uh, to move your body. We know this is good for our health. It's all connected, right? Our emotional, spiritual health is all connected to our physical body. Um, but, but let me ask you this. Have you ever been like gearing up for a vacation, right? Maybe you're, you've got your sights set on going on a beach trip. You're going on a cruise. Maybe it's a, a wedding anniversary, something like that. And you think, okay, I've got, I've got six weeks till I'm, I'm going to Miami or whatever. Now, now some of y'all like to go camping for vacation. I still don't really understand that, but let's say you're going to the beach, okay? And um, you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just grind. I'm gonna get in shape. I got six weeks, I'm gonna work out, I'm gonna diet and, and you do it and you go on your trip and you feel good. What happens when you come back? Right. This is when uh, we get back to real life and we kind of fall back into uh, whatever we were doing before. Now, when Paul in this text is saying, I want you to uh, work out your salvation. This is his call. This is a long game. He's talking about a lifestyle, not a moment in time, not a not a little sprint. He's saying, work out your salvation. Now, this word salvation, this, this is a common word. We're probably familiar with it. Uh, we talk about it in church. Um, but I find sometimes even if we're familiar with the word, it doesn't always mean we really know uh, what, what it means even. So I just want to unpack that quickly and, and talk about what I think uh, he, he means by this and what he doesn't mean. Uh, so in Ephesians chapter 2, another letter from Paul, verses 8 and 9, I want to read that because I think this is a good definition for uh, what he means by salvation. This is probably pretty familiar for many of us. He says in, in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your, from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So we see salvation as a gift. So when Paul's talking to the Ephesians saying, I want you to work out your salvation, He's not saying, I, I want you to work to get salvation, right? We've already seen that that's been done. That's been accomplished. And interestingly, if you go on in Ephesians 2 and you read verse 10, listen to what Paul says. He says, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Did, did you catch that? He says, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So we see that we're not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. Remember the teaching of, of Jesus when he said um, about being like a light in a city on a hill. He said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works, see your good deeds. So Christ accomplished what you and I could never do uh, in our salvation by bringing us to God, reconciling us to God and each other. But he doesn't just leave us there. He says, you've got work to do. There's good works that I've prepared for you to walk into. I think sometimes as Christians, we, we tend to 
place a lot of emphasis on this kind of moment in time, right? You know, the moment I got saved or the moment of conversion. And that's, that's important. That's important. But there's an entire life, this idea of working out your salvation. There's this, uh, this whole way of being in the world that constitutes living a life of salvation. I like to say this is bigger than a one moment calling, right? This isn't um, a sort of fad diet. It's not something you just throw in the microwave, right? This is a, a lifestyle working out our salvation. Eugene Peterson, uh, the author of the Message Translation, he talks about what, what maybe this idea of working out the salvation means. And he says this, he says, it's a long obedience in the same direction. And I love that. This idea of a spiritual journey for the believer and the community of believers. It's funny, the first Christians didn't have this word Christianity to describe what they were doing, right, with their faith as they were figuring out how to follow Jesus together. You know what they called it? They called it the way. They said they were followers of the way. This was the journey that they were on together. This life of obedience, we might say. And this life of obedience, uh, it's, it's an expected output of this initial salvation. Uh, there's a, a pastor out of New York City named Rich Velades, and uh, follow him on Twitter. He's a pastor of one of the most diverse churches in America. And he said something uh, interesting this week that stood out to me. He said, the sad irony of our day is, is we can be committed to being a Christian, but not deeply formed by Christ. Contemplate that for a moment. We can be committed to being a Christian, but not deeply formed by Christ. Are we more committed to the label Christian than we are to being conformed to his likeness? To really putting in the work. Again, it's not a momentary confession. It's not a momentary uh, surrender, although that's important. Uh, but it's a life. It's a life lived, surrendered to Christ. This is working out our salvation. Now, you might be thinking, well, what are we talking about when we're saying working out our salvation, the lifestyle? What, what is the stuff that consists of, of, that makes up this, that constitutes this idea? And I would say it's, it's all through the scriptures. Uh, Philippians 2 is a perfect place to start. Uh, the beginning of that chapter, we see Christ's humility. That's part of uh, us being formed into the image of Christ. And, and these kind of things come through practices, spiritual practices like prayer and fasting. This also includes pursuing righteousness, right? Giving generously, practicing hospitality, loving our neighbors, loving our families, sharing the gospel with our words and also with our presence. And I want to talk about uh, from the text two distinguishing markers of uh, working out our salvation. Okay, two markers. The first one is, and this might sound a little harsh, uh, it's not just about you. That's the first one. It's not just about you. I promise I don't have an attitude. You, got, you can blame the text for that. Uh, but the second one, a little bit nicer, it's not all up to you. It's not all up to you. So the first, the first marker of, of working out our salvation, it's not just about you. You know, it's, it's funny, as I was preparing for this sermon, it's like kind of tempting to, uh, to read this and think, oh, I'm going to talk about 
getting spiritually in shape, right? I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna like, we're gonna get excited about all kind of developing our own personalized uh, spiritual workout plan, you know, really get in shape. And I think that's valid. And um, I think that's important, but there's something deeper going on here actually. So I'm, I'm a total grammar nerd. Like I love language. If there's any grammar nerds in the house, shout out. And, and one thing that you, you find, if you look in the original language from this text here, is that every place you see you or your, it's actually a plural second person. Uh, in fact, the, the translators messed this up. They were supposed to write y'all in here, <laughs> but they didn't. That's, that's a Texas joke. If Martin was here, you'd appreciate that. Um, so it says, you know, when he's saying work out your salvation, you've always obeyed. This is, this is you all. This is all of you, your salvation. And so there's this corporate aspect to what's going on. This isn't just individualized spirituality or your personal plan, so to speak. You're working out. There's a corporate dynamic here. And I think this is, uh, this is really important for us to think about how we're interconnected. So the, the late Desmond Tutu, uh, who did some incredible work around reconciliation, peacemaking, forgiveness. He has this little short quote, uh, but it's, it's always stuck with me. He said this, he said, we can only be human together. We can only be human together. In other words, my humanity is, is somehow wrapped up in yours, right? We, we know this from the scriptures. We know this as the church, right? This uh, analogy of a body, right? Um, we can't say, the, the hand can't say to the foot, I have no need of you. We are all together. We have a collective identity. And so it's, it's not to say that there's, there's no individual aspect to this, right? Um, because how many of us know that the work we do individually uh, with our, between ourselves and God um, in, in a secret place, or perhaps between ourselves and God with the help of a, a therapist or a spiritual director or something like that. But this work that we do individually, it spills out onto our neighbor. It spills out onto one another. And the extent to which you put in or don't put in the work, it will impact your neighbor, your fellow church member, maybe the person sitting right next to you this morning. And so, uh, and when I'm saying work, uh, just to explain what I mean there, I'm talking about continually allowing God's, God active access to all parts of your life. Continually allowing God all access to all parts of your life and responding accordingly. That's what I mean by, by work, what, working out our salvation. Uh, now, I think there's, there's so many implications of this that we could talk about, right? There's so many examples. And so I, I want to pick just one. And um, I think that part of working out our salvation is inclusive of, and, and not limited to, but certainly inclusive of doing the works of justice. And uh, for all of us, but maybe especially for, for my people who have skin as pale as mine, which is almost translucent at this time of year. <laughs> but but to, to my, I wanna talk to, to my white folks for a second. Um, and, and just to say that um, I think when we're thinking about this doing work, I think we have some homework to do. Um, I would say some lifelong homework. And what I mean by that is, is we're gonna have to study 
and, and read books and, and learn about the ways that the social construct that is race has been used uh, to serve white folks in advantageous ways and has also been used to harm our black and brown brothers and sisters. And um, if you're looking for maybe books or resources to read on that, check out Detroit Church's Instagram page because we, we mentioned a bunch last month. Um, but I just wanna, wanna say that, not with accusation, but that I'm right there uh, with you. And I think uh, it's important to remember because we, we're part of a, a beautiful, colorful church community, right? We are, we are blessed to be in, in such a diverse space. Um, but we, we can't think that attending a diverse church means that our work is done, right? That we've done the work uh, in, in this regard, in this area. But for all of us, again, this is a reminder to, uh, to stay, to, to not get stagnant, right, spiritually, to, to not idle. Because working out our salvation involves looking to the interest of others. I would go as far to say this, living a life with God that doesn't touch your neighbor misses the mark, misses the mark. So that's the first one, right? It's not all about you. Now, the second one, this other distinguishing marker of working out our salvation is it's not all up to you. We can all breathe like a sigh of relief right now, right? It's not all up to you. Maybe someone really needs to hear that this morning. It's not all up to you. Verse 13 says this. Paul says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is actively involved here, right? Yes, we work out our own salvation, and yes, God is actively involved. Those are happening somehow at the same time. Paul says it this way in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, right? This is a reminder that there's this under, underlying reality at play here, that God is at work in us. It's interesting that word work in the Greek is where we get our English word for energy. So it's almost this idea that God energizes us as we face uh, the daunting task of living rightly. Uh, there's this invitation here to cooperate with God. Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but I think my parents out there will appreciate this. Uh, think about when your kid has homework, right? Um, and you know that, that you're not going to do their homework for them, right? But you're going you're gonna to help to cultivate a space where they can be successful. You're going to make sure they have a good meal. You're going to make sure they have a good place to study, that they've got their textbooks. Maybe they need a tutor. They need a little help. You're probably going to give them some feedback. Maybe you have to discipline them if they're not on track, right? So uh, you're going to cultivate everything they need to do their work. You're not going to do it for them, but you're going to make sure they can do their work. This is almost the invitation and, and the way, in a sense, that God is, is working with us. And so we remember that as, as we work out our salvation, as we love our neighbor, as we show up in the world the way Christ leads us and the way Christ exemplified for us, we don't have to worry if we will have sufficient strength or sufficient wisdom that we need. 
because he is with us in it. And this is good news, you know, regardless of your kind of proclivity here. And I think we can kind of move between these two extremes, two poles. At least I know I can. Because there's times in my life where I feel like I'm, I'm doing good. Like, I've got it. I've got it going on. And it becomes this thing where I'm making things happen, right? And I start to rely on my own strength and I start to fall into this lie that it's all up to me to make things happen. And there's only one result that inevitably comes out of that every time for me. And that's a burnout. (laughs) It's burnout. And uh, this reality though, that God is at work in in the midst of this, right? And that it's not all up to me. It keeps us from that, that kind of arrogant uh, reliance on ourselves. The other proclivity or other tendency maybe on the other side is fighting the sense of personal inadequacy, right? Uh, this idea that I can never really attain. So I get discouraged. I get slothful. I give up. Or maybe for you, uh, you fall into this trap that, that some past experience, right? Some past season with God was kind of the pinnacle of your walk with God. And you can't get back to that, so you just stop trying. You just stop working out your salvation. The encouragement here is don't plateau in your spiritual formation. Avoid idleness, right? Your community is counting on it. Community needs you, uh, and God is, is with you in that. It's interesting that Paul says uh, here, he says, not only, he's talking about working out your salvation, not only in my presence, he says, but much more in my absence, much more in my absence. Remember, Paul, um, he was going through some things, right? And, and he says, you know, I don't want you to just live like this when I'm around because he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. So Paul was, was a leader. He was probably a motivation to the people. And I, I think about um, our context, how we have incredible leaders, how we're really blessed with incredible leaders at Detroit Church. I think about it a lot. Um, in fact, I, I think about, you know, Pastor Sonny, for instance, if he, if he just walks into a room, he doesn't even have to say anything to me. I'm already called higher, right? I'm just, it just kind of rubs off. And I think about Lindsay. I just watch her living her life and I'm just called higher. I'm inspired. I think about Pastor Fonz and Krista and I could just go down the list of the leaders in this church and how amazing they are. And I'm sure this was the case with Paul. He was this motivation. But perhaps for the Philippians, their zeal and their confidence was somewhat uh, maybe too dependent or too tied up in Paul being present and Paul, uh, Paul's leadership. It's as though he's saying, I need you to own your faith journey, right? Make it yours. I've been reflecting uh, on this Lenten season. A lot of the, the church around the world is, is observing Lent right now. It's just 40 days leading up to Easter. It's, it's 40 days to kind of remember the 40 days that Jesus uh, went through the temptation in the wilderness. And one thing that's really struck me in reflecting on that this year is how Jesus was just in this obscure, kind of desolate place, like this lonely place, remote. No one ever saw what happened. Like this was the most intense spiritual battle. He only had one companion, that was Satan, who was just tempting him. I think the reflection for me lately with that has been 
How comfortable am I with obscurity? What's really at the core of who I am when no one's watching, when no one's around? Or do I need to be seen? It's a hard question to ask ourselves. Um, and I think being seen can be a good motivator, right? We're talking about getting in shape for the beach. It's good, to, you know, that's, that can motivate us. But here's the thing. If you do things to be seen, you'll never become truly virtuous. If you do things to be seen, you'll never become conformed into the image of Christ. If you do things to be seen, you won't be seen when it really counts. What, what do I mean by this? Well, there's a story in Matthew 25, a story that's always kind of haunted me, I think, in the right ways. It's always been a really sobering story to read. And this is the, the story of the, of the sheep and the goats, right, where we see uh, Jesus kind of dividing these groups of people, almost like a, a judgment day sort of scene. It says in Matthew 25, verse 34, that the king will say to those on the right, these are the sheep, he says, come, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. He's welcoming them in to the kingdom. And then he says, why? Verse 35, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. This is, the, this is the funny part. Verse 37 says, Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, what the heck are you talking about? No, they don't say that. But they, basically, they say that, right? They say, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick and in prison and go to visit you? And this is the king will reply, Truly, I say to you, in other words, listen to me, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. He goes on to speak to those on his left and say, depart from me because you never uh, did these things. Um, and it's, it's really uh, profound to think about this idea that, that Jesus saying to us, I saw what you did when you thought no one was watching. And it ministered to me. Right? When, what do we do when no, we think no one is watching? Right? Thinking about Ephesians 2.10, we're created uh, in Christ Jesus to do good works. Right? There's these things prepared for us to walk into even when Paul is not there. Right? Even when our leaders are not around. Even when the people that we respect aren't there even when we're in obscurity. And it's interesting, uh, this working out our salvation, this last uh, kind of thing I'll say as, as we'll move forward, but he qualifies this when he says working out your salvation. He talks about the manner in which this happens. And, you know, thinking about working out in the gym, I was thinking about my high school days when I played basketball. I was, I was like hardcore basketball girl. Uh, I played select year-round, and I'm sure I looked super cool because I had knee-high white socks, I had uh, high-top basketball shoes, I had knee pads because I was so scrappy. I had to wear knee pads. 
<laughs> uh, some of y'all know about this. And I had like tight slicked back hair, like Diana Taurasi style. Like I was cool. And I had a Walkman, right? I had a Walkman and you had to keep it kind of flat because if you turned it, it would skip the CD in there. And before a game or before practice, I would just get in the zone, right? I was so hardcore. <laughs> and so this is what we do, right? We're trying to prepare for working out or in a game. We try to get pumped up. It's funny, it's unexpected what Paul does because he doesn't say, I want you to work out your salvation uh, with, with confidence, right? And, and with focus. Or I want, I want you to work out your salvation with grit or uh, with, by grinding real hard kind of thing. He says, no, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. This word fear can feel kind of unsettling sometimes, but there's, a, there's actually a few different types of fear. We see this in Exodus 20, uh, verse 20 where Moses is uh, speaking and he talks about these two types of fear. It says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That's, that's the first type of fear. You, you don't want to be afraid. He says, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Right? The fear of God that will keep you from sinning. So on the one hand, uh, there's this fear of, of someone who's maybe afraid of their circumstances, right? Someone who's afraid of God. This is why we see all throughout the scriptures, do not fear, do not fear. Because the fruit of this sort of fear is, is often dread or shame or isolation. But there's another type of fear. And this is someone who has a reverential awe for who God is, right? This is uh, when someone rightfully acknowledges God as supreme and majestic. It's almost like standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon type of fear. And the fruit of this fear is worship, obedience, love, repentance, righteousness. So he says, work out your salvation with this fear and trembling. And it's not the only place we see that phrase, fear and trembling. There's six or seven times, and I won't read through those. Um, but it is interesting to note that in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, Verse 15, I want you to hear what, what is said. 2 Corinthians uh, 7, verse 15. It says, and his, his affection, this is speaking about Titus, and his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. There it is again, fear and trembling. Except what we see there is a posture even towards one another. But there's, we can even have reverence for each other in, in, in the sense that we recognize the image of God in one another. So as we think about this, a community of lights uh, working out together, working out our salvation, we might want to think about how am I loving my neighbor, right? Um, am I allowing the good work that God began in me, at my initial salvation, to work in every part of my life? The other aspect I want to talk about is how a community of lights shines together. Community of lights shines together. And what I mean by shines is, is these kind of patterns of embodiment, right? These ways of, of being in the world, ways of existing. So picking up in verse 14 through 16, Paul writes, Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked, and crooked generation, 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And I'll stop there. Right, this is where we get this idea of, of, of shining, this idea of a community of lights, a calling to be like the stars. But notice what he, where he starts. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. He starts with the barriers to shining, to this calling collectively. Have you ever uh, been maybe in a, a remote place, kind of you got out, out from the city and you're at night and you can see the stars uh, just so clear? But uh, there's times where you can be way out of the city limits and you can't see the stars. And uh, it doesn't matter how remote you are, but if it's a cloudy night, you won't be able to see them, right? And so there's these ways in which uh, there can be this kind of haze over our call to be a community of light. And so he's talking about the barriers that come between us and and being seen uh, by the world as these shining lights. And there's some context, actually, for what Paul's doing here, verse 14. He says, don't, don't argue uh, or, or bicker or dispute. He's got a reason for writing this because there's actually a pre-existing issue at play in the church at Philippi. Uh, in Philippians 4.2, we get a little hint. He says, I plead, he calls two women out uh, who are probably leaders in the church, many think. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. yes. And I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they had contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So it's a nice way of, of saying, uh, apparently, a couple people have, have issues, right? There's some, they have beef with each other, and they need to squash it. This is kind of what Paul uh, is, is getting at here. This is not congruent with, with the wake of Christ, of this humility we've talked about. Right? This is a threat to unity, of having communal harmony. And so he says, don't argue. It's funny, when we think about the state of the church today, I think uh, the church in some ways has largely lost respect from, from society, from our culture. Uh, lost its authority in some ways. And there's probably a ton of reasons we could sort of speculate on why that is. But I think perhaps uh, one of the main ones is, is division, division among us. We've lost our authority. In Philippians 2, 2, we remember uh, Paul calls them to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and mind. In verse 5, he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So he's calling them out, saying, if you've got issues among each other, you need to work it out. I think the measure of the church's authority is directly related to the measure of her conformity to the mind of Christ. So Paul's driving at this issue of unity, right? He says, avoid grumbling. Avoid grumbling. So I looked up grumbling in one of the Bible dictionaries, and this is what it said. Grumbling is a complaint uttered in a low and indistinct tone. Behind the scenes talk to complain or to murmur. Now, uh, there's an account of this kind of grumbling and arguing in the New Testament when Jesus is out with his disciples and uh, he overhears them. I think they're out walking and there's this, this argument that breaks out of who's the greatest, right? Who's the greatest? And uh, 
Jesus ends up taking a child and putting, putting the child before them and saying, if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to be like this child. But it's funny how, um, especially for the context of Paul's audience, the Philippians, this, this Greek and Roman culture, there was, it was really known as an honor-shame culture, right? Uh, this, this idea that uh, in the Roman world, everyone was, was engaged, constantly engaged in this act of seeking honor. In fact, one commentator said it like this, all Romanized people experienced a single-minded, all-consuming zeal to acquire and demonstrate their status and honor, no matter the social level or occupation. And this often came at the cost of competing with each other. Remember, Paul um, is, is calling them to heaven's mentality here. He's saying, yeah, you may be citizens of Rome, or Romanized in some sense, but this is not uh, your most fundamental identity. This is not your most salient identity. So stop grumbling and arguing, competing with one another, because I've called you to something higher. Uh, there's also grumbling we see in, in the Old Testament. Uh, one account is in Numbers for, uh, chapter 14, Numbers 14, verse 2. It says, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. There's grumbling against the leaders. Same thing in Exodus 16. We see grumbling against the leaders. It's interesting uh, in Exodus uh, that, that God ends up speaking at, in this way that grumbling against Moses was actually taken as uh, grumbling and complaining against God. Uh, we need to be cautious of our grumbling, right? Now, I do want to make a caveat there because there's an important difference between grumbling and raising uh, concerns from a sincere heart, right? Those are different things. So, so this doesn't give church leaders, for example, the right to refuse to give ear to real problems. In Acts, uh, we see a problem arise uh, in Acts chapter 6, where certain uh, widows are not being fed, uh, not being cared for. It says, In those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And in that account, the leaders take this to heart and they do something there. So there's a difference uh, between grumbling, and I want to say that because I think uh, today, unfortunately, we see a lot of, of spiritual abuse in churches, right? Toxic cultures uh, and, and leadership and things like that. And so it's important uh, to note uh, those sorts of things. But Paul is saying, I want you to avoid grumbling. Because you know what avoiding grumbling does? It keeps your heart pure. It keeps your heart pure. And it preserves your witness, right? Uh, I think about our culture sometimes and this kind of cancel culture, finger pointing, uh, virtue signaling, uh, which is just another way of saying, I, I need to let the world know that I'm not like them, right? And I think sometimes about this and think, what if we spent the same amount of energy that we spend in finding fault in others on examining ourselves? What if instead of being preoccupied with fault-finding in other people, we became preoccupied with being without fault ourselves. 
a Psalm 139 prayer. Search me, O God, and know me. See if there's anything offensive in me. What if instead of virtue signaling, we worked on virtue development, right? Working on truly cultivating virtue in the unseen parts of our hearts and lives. Now, verse 15 says, okay, avoid grumbling and arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without faults in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Now, this idea of uh, becoming blameless and pure, you might, uh, your translation might say innocent. Uh, there's this idea of righteousness. And we see this reflected in, in Matthew 16.10, where Jesus talks about being wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That idea of innocence there. Now, not the same thing as being naive, right? Uh, this, is, this is innocence as far as evil is concerned. Again, reminded that, that righteousness is not a private matter. He says, you are to shine as lights in the world, right? There's this outward-facing aspect, this public witness uh, aspect of us being a community of lights. Again, we're connected whether we know it or not, right? We impact each other. There's implications for our actions. There's an African proverb uh, that says, when elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. When elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. In other words, it's not just the elephants that are, are harmed or involved. There's an entire living ecosystem of creatures underfoot that get stomped on and, and harmed in that situation. And that's the thing about uh, sin, whether private or public, it's, it's destructive by nature. And so a community of lights, this calling that we have together that strives for righteousness, for purity, for innocence with God and, and with one another, this is a community that stands against sin that destroys lives. I would say especially the lives of the weakest among us, like the, uh, the poor, the orphan, the widow, we had a series on the book of James several months ago. It's called True Religion. It's from James 1.27. It says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is why um, we need to work out our salvation so that we can live effectively in our communities, right? So that we don't harm our communities, but instead we become that warm light for people to come into. Doesn't mean we have to be perfect to be in community, right? To clean ourselves up before we come into community. Just means that this is our pursuit, the pursuit of, of purity and righteousness. Uh, now verse 16, uh, Paul talks about how to shine. He says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. As you hold firmly to the word of life. This is the how in terms of shining. Now that, that phrase, word of life, uh, this is, he's talking about the gospel. He's talking about his whole life message that he's been preaching. This story that we're all wrapped up in with Christ as the central character. Uh, one definition of, of the gospel uh, for you is the message that God 
has acted in Jesus of Nazareth in order to redeem humanity, establish his kingdom, and restore creation. This is the word of life. Of course, the scriptures testify to this. This is the person of Jesus. And Paul says, hold firmly to this word of life. There's perseverance going on here. Hold fast. Maintain your grasp on the gospel. This is our call. Because firm footing on the word, on the word of life, means a shining witness. Um, there's, a, there's an app that's gained a lot of popularity over the years if you're interested in language learning. It's called Duolingo. Anybody know about Duolingo? So you, you can learn languages. Actually, they said that uh, more people are learning a foreign language on the Duolingo app than are in public schools everywhere today. It's pretty incredible. Um, but have you ever learned a foreign language or maybe, you've, maybe you're bilingual and you kind of stop speaking it for a while, you're not around, people are speaking it, and you kind of start to lose it, right? You kind of start to slip uh, where, where you're not as, as um, you know, good with the language because you don't speak it a lot. We think about uh, the word of life, we think about the gospel. Some practitioners have coined this term gospel fluency, right? Being fluent in the gospel, in the word of truth, in this story of Jesus. I think this is the call uh, to, for the community of lights to be fluent in the things of God, right? To hold firmly to the word of life. So a community of lights works out together, works out their salvation together. A community of lights um, holds fast to the word and they shine. And the last thing as I close here in the last few moments the third one, a community of lights rejoices together, rejoices together. Verse 17 and 18, Paul says this, but even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, this theme of joy, rejoicing, rejoicing with, these, uh, these words come up about 16 times in the, the short letter to the Philippians. If you didn't get a chance, you can go back a few weeks uh, prior to now and, and listen to Pastor Sonny's sermon about joy builders and joy blockers and this whole idea uh, that Paul is driving at, which is really incredible if you think about all the suffering that we know Paul went through. Uh, he says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering. It's almost as if he's saying, even though, my, yeah, my, my apostolic ministry has been strenuous. I've been running. I've been laboring. And even if I'm to be poured out even more, I'm going to do one thing. And that is I'm going to rejoice. And I invite you to rejoice with me. So this image of a, of a drink offering um, this, this would have been common language in like Greek and Roman culture of, of this idea of pouring out a drink offering of wine in honor of a god or a goddess or something like that. Uh, but also, of course, we know Paul was Jewish and he was probably kind of hearkening back to the sacrificial system in antiquity uh, from, from among Jews in the Old Testament. And there was this idea of a drink offering being sometimes added to the main sacrifice in order to make it almost total or complete, this drink offering being poured out to complete the sacrifice. 
And so Paul here is saying that he, he pictures his life as a drink offering added to the Philippians' sacrifice, added to their life of sacrifice and service. And he says, um, he says, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you as I'm poured out. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I want to leave you with this today. We have a calling as a community together. And it's a, it's a calling to be, uh, in a sense, a community of lights called to shine. Lighting can change everything, right? A community whose ambiance transforms the places we go. That's what we're called to. And we do this through several things, just to, just to recap. We do this by uh, putting in our work, right? Working out together, working out our salvation, doing good works. We also become a community of lights by being attentive to our, our glow, our hue, right? And guarding against anything that would hinder it, whether it's arguing or grumbling, those sorts of things, but, but living into that call to shine together. And we also do this by rejoicing, by rejoicing. I encourage you uh, in that rejoicing to, to find even little ways to kind of sprinkle gratitude into your daily life, um, right? I heard one guy say the other day, I said, how are you doing? And he said, I'm doing far better than I deserve. And I thought, wow. There's some, some depth and gratitude to that man. So as you maybe discuss in your homes this morning, or as you reflect on your own, I want you to think about this question. How do we shine in our community? And what does that look like for us right now? We're kind of wandering uh, from, from different neighborhood to neighborhood. Uh, I shouldn't say wandering, we're popping up, right? Uh, we're just following the spirit as we go along. But what does it look like for us to shine together how can we shine in our community? Won't you pray with me? God, we thank you uh, that you have given us the gift of salvation and that you've, you've prepared for us good works that we would walk in them. God, would you show us together as a church, you show us together as a people, as your community of lights, how to walk out our salvation together, how to work these things out, God, how to shine. God, as we, as we go about our community, as we go about our days and our lives, as we meet in different parts of the city, God, would you give us a vision uh, for the community you've called us to be? We thank you so much for this time together this morning. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. We'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church.